What the If is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education. Welcome. Science fun. To what? The If. Galactic Edition. Greetings from. Uh, I am. I am not in the home studio. I am in uh, uh, on assignment in Washington D.C. Which, well, that, that would be that could be an important assignment. The assignment is not uh, well. That it could important. be. Yeah, right. it could be. Uh, mine, mine is not so important. But uh, uh, it was super exciting. I was, um, as many of you know, we um, we had Chris Carberry, who's the head of Explore Mars, uh, and the CEO of the Humans to Mars Summit. We had him on a few episodes ago, and he uh, kindly had invited me to attend the conference, which was uh, just over the past three days here in Washington, D.C. I'm on the campus of George Washington University, lovely campus. And uh, it was a fantastic conference. Those of you who have been following us on Twitter, by the way, at What The If Show may have seen. I've been posting uh, lots of fun highlights that I've been recording from uh, the conference and will continue to do so. So um, exploremars.org slash summit if you want to find out more information about it or just follow us on Twitter. A lot of fun stuff. I will say this, uh, among the highlights were, um, as I was telling you guys before the show, I got to meet, oh, um, one of the executive producers and head writers for Stargate, one of my favorite TV series ever. Yeah, was that Brad Wright? Is that his name? His, his name was Robert Cooper. Oh, Cooper. Okay, Robert right. Cooper. Robert. Yeah. He came on a little bit later. It wasn't at the very beginning. He was in some of the later seasons. Uh, among his... Um, contributions to the show was he created the concept of the ancients oh that's a pretty big contribution yeah yeah yeah, pretty and really cool i thought it was a cool addition so um, he also worked on on star trek next generation and things like that um i got to meet astronaut cheyenne proctor from uh the inspiration four mission she flew on spacex uh and oh one of our um um former guests so i'd hope to oh Love to get back on the show again. Uh, uh, Jancy from mm. the Sci Art Exchange oh, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. Foundation. Uh, everybody laughed when I did. I got to ask a question during the panel that she was on. And I said, oh, we've had Jancy on before. And uh, we did an episode called What If a Scientist and an Artist Get Trapped in an Elevator Together? That was big laughs. It's a fun episode. So, um, so Matt Stanley, you are back from assignment you were on secret assignment last uh week. yes more local secret assignment um but uh, i survived you survived mm-hmm. that's that's good that you survived but we wouldn't know you know we we are we since we don't meet in person even if we did i'm not sure we could attest to the fact you may have been replaced by an exact replica uh that's true i could have um uh, just recorded um, my image and sound for the day and i'm playing it back for you on a, a very sophisticated feedback loop that's right. No. You know, there's a guy who did that. There's a guy who it's on YouTube. You can watch a video. A guy who recorded a loop of himself just nodding and occasionally saying yes, yes, so that he could 
during Zoom meet, boring office Zoom meetings, just get up and walk around. That's a really good plan. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, Gabby Panisi is here. How are you? I'm good. I was on a much more domestic assignment. I had jury duty on Tuesday. No way. uh, I can't tell what was a less productive use of my time sitting in a room for just eight hours or reading Heinlein's A Stranger in a Strange Land while stuck in a room for jury duty. Oh, it's a zero out of 10 experience. So all, all around. So you were not so, selected then, I take it? I was not. I was not. Thank God I was not. Uh, I had too much science to do. I'm amazed they made. <laughs> so that must be how they do it in Manhattan. In Brooklyn, I blew my mind. Yeah, I, I, I've been in Manhattan and I've done jury duty a couple of times. And I actually enjoyed it because I, I did get picked eventually for a trial. And it was it's a very difficult situation. Very sad to be on some of these cases, but fascinating. Um, but in Brooklyn, you just call in and they just tell you. Uh, it's like you call in the night before and they tell you whether they need you or not. So you don't have to. Yeah. So that's it. what this was. I called in the night oh. before, but it basically tells you what chunk of people, like how many people they're going to pick to come to the room that day and then you sit in the room and then if they're doing any um voters essentially interviewing jurors then they'll call people from that pool um but they i think they only called once and it was like 10 people and then they left and then like an hour later they were like all right day's over everyone go yeah that was it you know democracy it isn't always uh it's not as glamorous as it's made out to be you know the contribution to democracy that we make um but the thing, you do get paid for that day, I believe, Gabby. Like I, I mean, I'm going to get paid for my work anyway. Like, oh, I'm right salaried on. as a grad student. They're not going to be like, mm, you, you had jury duty this day, so we're docking X amount from your pay. It's the same paycheck every month. You should have showed up. In, if you want to get out of jury duty, show up in your hazmat suit. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty good, actually. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I can't take this off. Right, right. The human back. atmosphere is not compatible <laughs> with my metabolism. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just really not. I'm just really worried about COVID, guys. Yeah, <laughs> in the full. And that, that is not a bad segue to today's subject. So today's subject, um, I thought, uh, inspired by my attending the Humans to Mars Summit, I, did, I didn't want to do a Mars thing because we, we've just done. You know, we had Chris on the show, and that was fantastic. We've done some Mars stuff recently. Uh, which, by the way, you should go back and look at. Uh, if, if you're not familiar, you go to our website, whatthef.com. You can see all our previous, ep- listen to all our previous episodes there. Um, you can also contact us there. You can learn how to subscribe. You can learn how to join our membership program, our Patreon program, where you can get all kinds of cool merch, uh, mugs, T-shirts, hoodies, uh, exclusive um audio segments that we're recording um, just for our members. Cool stuff like that. Patreon.com slash what is there as well. Anyway, or you can just on your app that you're using, you can scroll back and find previous episodes. So we had great stuff. But um, one of the topics, one of the most scintillating topics at the the, uh, conference, of course, was um, will we find life on Mars, even if it's just just, even if it's microbial life? they said, for instance, there's probably not little green men uh, or little green women, um, but there may be little green uh, non-gendered microbial life. Uh, or we don't know how they identify, right? That's a good question. That'd be a fun show. Um, but the, the next question, if we do discover life on another world, will be 
um, is it, does it have DNA? Um, like, is it identical to us, which would be a profound discovery? Or does it have some other kind of system, uh, another version of DNA? Um, and of course, what would that mean? But of those two possibilities, the one, of course, that strikes me as quite interesting for today is what if, what if we find life on Mars? And inside the microbes, we look and we get in there and we find inside the cells DNA. DNA I wouldn't be identical, identical, but, but very, very, very close to our own. And we can talk about actually how different it would be while still being considered close to us. Um, that would mean probably that, that life formed on either Mars or Earth and jumped from one to the other. Or it means that life formed somewhere else, either in the solar system or in the galaxy or in the universe, and is all over the place, right? All kinds of profound implications. And so because we have both, uh, uh, both of you, I think will have fascinating things to contribute to this question is what the if. We ask this week, what the if? The panspermia hypothesis is real. And I'm just going to get the joke out of the way right now. That doesn't mean sperm in a pan. What does it mean? You guys can help us. The panspermia hypothesis. Microbes flying through space. So um, which of you would like to just help help uh, define for those who aren't familiar with the term panspermia? What does that mean? The panspermia hypothesis. Um, so there's a, a couple ways to think about it. Um, as the, as the name suggests, it's a, a Greek idea, um, okay. literally, um, origin of life everywhere. Right. There's, um, uh, so this is an idea that some of the, the Greek atomists, people like Democritus and Anaxagoras, um, uh, put forward that the universe would be full of life. Anaxa and I, I just um, I, I just have to give a shout out to Anaxagoras. I have mm -hmm. never heard of him. Oh. I assume it's a him. Uh, it is a him, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, dude. Um, uh, the uh, the ancient atomists were, let's see here, uh, widely reviled. So most of them have tales of being <laughs> like chased out of Athena and or Athens and Syracuse and, and places like that. Um, so most of them have some crazy tales um, about being, you know, persecuted and murdered in different ways. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the, uh, the, the reasoning behind that, the, those ideas was um, usually went something like this, um, that there sh uh, whatever principles run the universe should be the same everywhere. So mm -hmm. if those principles give rise to life here, they should give rise to life everywhere. Um, so uh, there must be planets. If there's a planet here, there must be a planet planets elsewhere that are like this and those planets must have life as well um uh, so this idea kind of goes in and out of fashion for for a long time um and kind it's of probably, an early early seti uh yeah something like that um and it's not seti in the sense that you could talk to the the aliens uh -huh. um uh, but the idea that the the universe is full of life um is very common for a very long 
periods of time. So even like in the 18th and 19th century, um, it's an accepted scientific principle that anywhere there can be life, there will be life. Um, and, so for and instance, they understood the notion of but they, they understood the life on other planets. Even yeah, right. So Kepler, for instance, them. thought people lived on the moon. Um, John Herschel and William Herschel, two of the greatest British astronomers of the 18th and 19th century, thought people lived on the sun. Um, uh, so it was this, this kind of it's the, it was the same kind of reasoning as like Anaxagoras and people that it would be a waste of space um, if there was not life everywhere that there could be. Um, Nowadays, panspermia gets uh, gets invoked to solve a particular problem, um, which is that if you think that once upon a time there was not life on Earth, and then at some point there is life on Earth, you need to explain how that came to be. Um, so this is this problem is sort of crystallized in the Darwinian era. Um, because if you follow back Darwinian reasoning, then there must be some point at which, as Darwin said, life is breathed into the first form of life on, on earth. Um, so you ask sort of, how does that happen? Um, and one strategy is called abiogenesis in which you say, um, somehow non-living chemicals come together in a way that create living things. And Gabby probably has more to say about this. Um, and then the alternative to that is panspermia, which is to say that life did not appear sort of natively here on earth, but came from somewhere else in the universe. So nowadays when people talk about panspermia, they're not evoking this general idea that there's life everywhere in the universe, but rather they're particularly trying to say, uh, trying to answer the question of how did life come to be here on earth? And the panspermia answer is it came from somewhere else. Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, Gabby, when you, I assume you're familiar with this concept, but how, is that true? And yeah, so I'd so, sort of heard how, it, how but it I'd heard it from sort of the other direction. And I don't know, Matt, you can tell me if maybe this is like not the right interpretation of it, but I'd also heard that if we find life in other places, especially in the same solar system, it might have come from early Earth and asteroid hit bits of like the, the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs could have ejected stuff, you know, out in the space or something that, mm -hmm. you know, the life that we find might be also derivative of Earth. Yeah, that's right. I'd, I'd call that sort of, I don't know, like level two panspermia or something, right? The yeah. idea that, that yeah. um, but I think you're, you're put your finger on something important is that one of the ideas, one of the important concepts in panspermia of any kind is the idea that life can cross interplanetary and interstellar distances. Um, so it's, so it's a reasonable answer to, whenever you find life to say, when you want to say, where did it come from? A reasonable answer is another planet, another star, a comet, something like that. Um, uh, yeah. 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 I think just even we start small and we'd imagine if it's possible that, um, if life did not form on earth, it is possible it formed on the next planet over, which interestingly could have been Venus as much as Mars, I'm guessing that both of them, Venus is now super hot, but to get super hot, it must've gone through a phase where it was temperate, like, like the earth. And, uh, Mars is now quite cold, but, um, actually can warm up, um, to decent temperatures, but it's exceedingly dry. There's, there's virtually no, well, there's water underground, but not, not, on, not in the atmosphere very much. Um, but it's possible that, that uh, life formed on either of those neighboring planets and was bounced here. Um, so I, I think that what people don't understand is, and, and it was news to me, I remember learning this when I was younger, that 
there are meteors. Uh, it, it was realized, uh, or may have been discovered before then, but uh, I know that Antarctic explorers um, discovered meteors. And at some point it was realized that these meteors uh, came from Mars, um, that they had been ejected from, uh, there had been an asteroid, an asteroid hit Mars, mm -hmm. ejected a bunch of stuff so hard that it reached escape velocity from Mars and made it to Earth, you know, in tiny, tiny chunks. But, um, and of course, was it back in the late 90s? There was a, there was a, for a period of time, we thought that perhaps we had found a meteor that actually inside this Martian meteor, there were signs of life, um, mm -hmm. signs of life having been there. Now is not believed probably to, to be the case. But um, anyway, um, Gabby, what from what you know about DNA, and also just let's just start super super basic. Just it never helps to, it never hurts <laughs> to restate just exactly what is DNA for those who are just coming on board. And um, uh, what would that mean? You know, how for DNA to have survived a situation like that where it was birthed on Mars and got bounced here? Well, I mean, so. DNA itself is not intrinsically life. Um, you can't uh, uh -huh. just do anything with just like a random piece of DNA. Um, some bacteria have the ability to take up DNA, but it's not always everything. Like loose DNA in the tabletop is probably not going to get picked up. Uh, they tend to have some sort of selection um, for one over the other. Um, so DNA in general is the heritable genetic material for all life on Earth. Um, well, it depends how you classify viruses. Sometimes there's this RNA. Um, but essentially, it's a way of storing genetic information to pass on to another generation and also to uh, encode the things that you yourself need. The things that do stuff in a cell are primarily um, proteins, although sometimes they can be RNAs uh, that do things enzymatically. Mm. Um, and these... Encoding it in DNA is kind of like having like a set library because life is weird. The cells are reducing environments. Things get messed up. So eventually you're going to kind of need to, you know, start over, remake a thing. Um, and that's where DNA comes in. Um, and the fun thing about the history of DNA is, um, you know, we actually weren't sure whether or not the genetic material was DNA or protein. Um, because when people looked at DNA, it was very boring. It's just four bases. They repeat, do random, you know, in random order, what have you. They're always paired up in the same way um, so that you only really need one strand of DNA, in a manner of speaking, to know what you're going to make or what have you. Mm. Um, and so people weren't sure if it was protein, actually, that was the genetic material, because if you look at the proteins expressed by things, you know, they can vary tremendously. Um, and so if you look at all of life and you're like, well, I look very differently than an octopus and you look at our protein makeup and our protein makeup is very different than an octopus. You're like, that must be what's deciding, um, you know, what makes an octopus an octopus versus me, a person. Um, but it actually turned out to be uh, DNA. which is So DNA is not a, a protein. D protein is made from DNA tells us, tells your cells how to make protein. Is that correct? Yeah, basically. So DNA mm -hmm. is relatively inert. It's very stable. Mm -hmm. It's a sugar phosphate backbone with the, the ATCGs that you might know. Those are the nucleotides. Um, and those are sort of facing the middle. Um, so it has this nice strong backbone. Um, the reason why RNA um, is less stable actually has to do with the structure of that backbone. Um, because you can accidentally wind up getting 
without going into the organic chemistry of it, you can accidentally wind up getting um, disconnected uh, because of the way that, you know, electrons can just bounce. Um, it can kind of react with itself to accidentally cleave itself. Um, <laughs> but it's, Oops, it's I not cleaved stable. myself. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, not I cleaved it again. <laughs> the sugar phosphate um, backbone sounds like something they'd advertise for like a breakfast cereal. It sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah. Crispy yeah. crunchies with a sugar phosphate backbone. Yeah. <laughs> Fortify. Um, Fortify with DMA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, it, it's interesting that you, you, you talk about it that way. Is DNA considered robust in a sense? Well, clearly, in other words, I think that I can say this, the fact that um, this is considered a, a possibility, right? That there's this idea that it's possible that DNA could arrive on Earth in, inside an asteroid, um, which means that it survived the creation of the asteroid, which is an astounding thing, um, let alone the journey, let alone the impact and all that kind of stuff, means that DNA is fairly robust but so my understanding of panspermia way? is not that it's dna arriving from other planets it's that oh, okay. it's life whole cloth um oh, right. that oh. like you would have a microbe trapped inside a thing as opposed to just dna from another planet because again like i said if you just drop dna on a planet that's got no atmosphere is heavily irradiated it's going to degrade yeah right. so i've seen a few different flavors of this um as you say i think the original and by original i mean like early 20th century is when people start getting excited about about panspermia those visions of it are as you say a microbe inside a rock um uh, often a comet for whatever reason people are excited mm -hmm. about comets mm -hmm. doing this um mm -hmm. and then that rock falls on the earth and then the microbe replicates and then eventually turns into mm -hmm. britney spears or whatever but um <laughs> but the um, as you say, once we realize that DNA is the the key to these sorts of things in the in the middle of the twentieth century, then there's some hope that oh well, this might be even easier because all we need is is one of these strands. Um, but then DNA itself, as as Gabby says, is actually quite delicate, not likely to survive um, this process. So then the hope becomes kind of drilling down one more and they say, well, maybe the things that make up DNA. Um, uh, can get us that as the the bases um if they can make it across space then maybe they'll be able to form dna on their own so sometimes well, the the quest for early astrobiology is to find things like adenine um in meteorites or even in deep space um and then as we say well if they could form out if the bases can form out in deep space then um maybe dna can form wherever the bases show up to right Right. Although I, th I will say this, that I think the notion that, you know, Carl Sagan used to talk about salts all the time and Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about it now. Um, the idea that the materials of life, the raw materials of life are everywhere mm -hmm. in the yeah. We see them everywhere. Um, but I think that the notion of DNA, our DNA, our instruction set, having been transported from somewhere else is what's really striking because that means in other words if you begin with the same raw ingredients um even if it's just the four bases you you might wind up with something totally different and that's cool but it's not it doesn't have that profound kind of creepiness <laughs> that that there may be identical or very 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 similar creatures to us somewhere else that uh, are our ancestors um 
So that that's a super helpful point, by the way, Gabby. So what you're saying is, yeah, it's it's so microbes. Uh, a microbe comes with DNA in it, and then those microbes are, um, let perhaps if they were in hibernation, reactivated upon you know encountering uh, humidity of the earth or something, and the nutrients, and they they come alive again. Um, do we know, Gabby? Can DNA sit? Well, this is a whole notion, I suppose, of having to try to like revive. Well, this is the idea behind Jurassic Park, right? So can DNA sit in hibernation and be reactivated? How fragile so, is it? So for one, hibernation is not a concept for DNA because everything that mm. interacts with DNA is is other sort of me mechanics. DNA itself, like I said, is very inert. It's not doing anything of its own accord. Right, right. Um, right. So then it can't be really reactivated unless you have cellular machinery, et cetera. Um, but DNA is definitely more stable, but it's not indefinitely stable. So, for example, um, as scientists, I could purify a bunch of DNA. I'm going to do that today. And I could leave it on room temperature, in water, on a table for like three years. And it's fine. Wow. Oh, wow. You can, you can completely desiccate it, and it's also very stable, I think. I don't have a timeline on that, but I think it's more stable than in liquid. Um, so you could get, you know, dried out DNA on a thing. Um, oh, there's something else about that that I was going to say that I can't quite remember. Yes, but that's the, that's yeah, the kind of it. thing yeah. that gets panspermia advocates really excited, right? They're like, look, yeah. if Gabby can just leave it on her table for a year... It's not so different for it to ride on a rock from Alpha right. Centauri. Well, this right? is the thing. Although, <laughs> I should ahead, mention... Yeah. Uh, things like Jurassic Park, right? You can't get DNA from something that's been stuck in amber for that long. So DNA is gone mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole concept of Jurassic Park doesn't really exist because there is essentially no intact DNA in those things. So there can be fragments, pieces, what have you, um, or even just degraded down to just the bases. Um, so what might, you know, if this is a journey of millions and millions of years on a rock that's being heavily irradiated, it's going to help, you know, break up the DNA. What might eventually arrive is just the, the pieces, which could then be used um, very much like what Matt said. Um, but it doesn't intrinsically mean that a whole piece of DNA could get there. Right, right. But to win the full golden ticket of this, if uh, it would be DNA strikingly similar to our own. And so here's what I imagine. Here, here's as our if evolves here. I imagine, Gabby, you doing this, you you stir up some DNA and you leave it on the table. And for some reason, you got uh, called away. And um, fortunately, you were called away that day because an asteroid hit your lab. And that DNA was, uh, was that, that the, the piece of Earth that that DNA was on, uh, called Rock Rockefeller University, and the name of your lab got bounced into space. And uh, bad day for New York, but it's happened yeah. in a million movies. So there's many, many movies you could watch. <laughs> See this scenario takes place. Anyway, and then um, it goes into space, and it goes to Mars, for instance. Um, or V, so it goes somewhere actually let's let's imagine even if, if for it to get ejected from the solar system that would be have to be one hell of an asteroid impact but, that would be pretty uh, nice. yeah yeah but not impossible 
not impossible. But so let's say it, let's say it goes to Mars, and and that for whatever reason Mars is uh, has gotten warm again. We'll, we'll give it a. There's a sub if here. There's been some terraforming going on on Mars, just so that this could land yeah, in a nice warm environment. Um, Gabby, as the DNA that you had left on the table now arrives on Mars, what can you imagine? Inside, I suppose you would have to say it was inside some microbes, right? As well. Um, uh, so rather you... than purified DNA, it just it just launched my bacterial cultures or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess yeah. That's actually that that would have to be more the case, right? To to stick to what you were saying about that the DNA arrives inside some sort of microbes, right? So your your some cultures from your lab got sent to Mars. Um, yeah. We're watching, we're fantastic voyage style. We're, we're watching those microbes inside an asteroid as it arrives at Mars. What do you see happening? Yeah, so I mean, provided they can survive on Mars, essentially what you have now is the only thing that's going to be seated in space is basically E. coli. Um, Cause that's all, like if it's just what's growing in my lab, um, it's going to be E. coli, maybe with a weird, with some weird plasmids in it. So that's kind of a neat thing. Plasmids are secondary little circular pieces of DNA that are not part of the bacterial chromosome. They're not part of the the main genetic information of what makes E. coli E. coli. Um, and what's very interesting is a lot of times we slap human genes in there, into the plasmids so that we can do other things with them. Um, but, you know, you could have a bacteria essentially unable to express a human gene, but a human gene is encoded um, in there. Um, yeah. essentially it won't be able to express it because it doesn't have the right start signal for bacteria to recognize it. It has a mammalian start signal, so it's never able to create a protein based off of it. Um, but you could wind up with a pretty interesting cocktail of, um, genetic information that's available. And so when these E. coli land in a new place, um, they're essentially going to immediately start evolving is probably not the best thing, but they're going to try to fill whatever ecological niche is there. Um, uh -huh. And because there's no competition, they're going to keep growing. They're going to differentiate from each other in some subtle ways. Um, and so essentially you're going to maybe within, you know, a couple thousand years, you know, get space E. coli that look pretty different than uh, Earth E. coli because they've been subjected to different environmental pressures. Like maybe they have to be more resistant to water loss or deal better with um, so much like UV exposure uh, from the thinner atmosphere. So maybe they develop better DNA repair mechanisms or something like that. Mm. Mm, cool. And and Matt, you're familiar somewhat with uh, the physics of asteroids and things like this. Mm. What what environment did these uh, E. coli experience as they went through this uh, journey? Oh, so they have to. So uh, from the initial impact. They have to survive the shock and high temperatures. Um, you generate lots of uh, short time period, but high temperatures, high pressures. Um, right. So that's um, that's doable, right? You do that, right? And um, even yeah. even just taking one step back on the journey across, there was radiation, but the but the size of the me size of the asteroid they, or the meteor they were traveling in would have protected them from. Um, uh, possibly, to, right? I guess that would, that would probably be a fairly, uh, intricate question to try and figure out is how much radiation shielding you'd get from the meteorite. Yeah. Um, I would assume it's a fairly high radiation environment. Um, and mm. then both low and high temperatures, uh, as it travels as well, right, um, right, and extremely right. low pressures that it has to be able to do okay with no atmosphere around it. 
Yeah. Um, and then on re-entry, you're going to get high temperatures again and then shock on impact. Um, so these are these would not be friendly things like for me, for instance. <laughs> I, I could right. not survive that that That's process. Right. Um, but I should say one of the reasons people get excited about tardigrades is that yes. it seems that they can survive all of those processes. Um, so again, one of the reasons people are excited about these little critters is because it seems to make pans some version of panspermia a little more plausible um, right. uh, because they can make it. So for instance, we have tardigrades on the moon now. That's right. Um, That's right. Which apparently I heard, I don't know if this is, I couldn't verify this. This only comes from one source, but one uh, a very knowledgeable person I spoke to at the conference, at this Mars conference, said that they were stowaways, that somehow there was some rogue scientist put them on the Israeli satellite and that the entire the team didn't know they were there. <laughs> The officials. I had, I had not heard that. Um, yeah. it's it's there. They were presented as an intentional experiment. But um, yeah, if, uh, anyway, I have to I have to look up the whole story here. But okay. he was saying is eventually the story got out, and so it was like, okay, oh wow. Although apparently, apparently they don't think they survived, and the reason why they tested that so it was a it was a uh, Israeli mission that I think crash landed on the moon. It did. That's right. It's and in order sheets. to test that, they put tardigrades inside of bullets and fired them to see if it would have survived that yeah. kind of impact, which again, I love science. And apparently that was a little too much. Um, right. Maybe maybe they got cushioned somehow. Hopefully, would love to see little water bears. The squishy now, I also have the, the possibly alarming side effect of teaching tardigrades how to use firearms, which I don't know if that... <laughs> how to ride bullets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to throw, having been to Israel a couple of times, I can say they're pretty tough people. So mm -hmm. if they're Israeli tardigrades, they have like a little extra hair. I'm just imagining tardigrade bullet time now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Oh, someone's got to make that movie. Someone's got to make that movie. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, they, the, the, the creatures survive this and, and they wind up now. For panspermia to have um, been a thing, it, the odds can go up slightly in that, for instance, let's say that for any given asteroid, or, you know, you got microbes traveling, E. coli traveling on a meteor, how are they going to survive all this? It does not sound likely. However, the creation of an entire planet, let alone all the planets in the solar system, involves an unfathomable number of rocks that may have E. coli inside them, for instance, right? Oh, so yeah. it's mm -hmm. the odds go up somewhat when you imagine that if if uh, microbes exist in the raw materials of the creation of a solar system, or they just exist in the dust of you know, in the galactic dust, um, that is, and this is something Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about quite a bit. Is, the amount of dust in the in the galaxy is like pretty massive. It's way more than we. It's the stars that we see. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, get No, I was just going to point out too. So that's another interesting component of this, right? Is that you may not need an entire bacterium to land on another mm. planet. You could just have the ingredients land on a place that's basically an incubator. Um, and so you mm. know, right now we have the idea that you know, in the primordial soup of Earth, there was enough stuff that could generate the precursors of life. 
so that these things sort of assembled and eventually, you know, self-replicating RNA was a thing. So that was sort of the first iteration of life. Um, but it's possible, too, that, you know, we can't really disprove that an, a- that an asteroid landed on Earth with organic compounds. And we found organic compounds on asteroids before. Yeah. Uh, the favorite one that, for me personally that we've ever identified from an asteroid was THC. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, we found space weed. Um, <laughs> this is the active ingredient in marijuana, right? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, we found space. Yeah. 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 Um, and so what this planet kind of did a, that come from? I don't know, uh, but and that I'm must sure have been the of... cover of High Times magazine that month. I mean, <laughs> we've got to look up this story. I am sure. Yeah, it's. Yeah. But one of the, the neat things about that, right, is is you know we have a, a genetic code that has four bases: A, T, C, and G. Um, but there's no reason why we need those four. Those aren't the only four that can happen. You can have DNA with an entirely different backbone makeup chemically. You could have DNA right. with entirely different nucleobases. So, you know, if it's what would be interesting is if there was a sort of standardization of life and the fact that, all right, well, the only four things that managed to ever make it to planets that are good incubators are the same four bases right. and maybe the yeah. same phosphate yeah. backbone. Mm-hmm. Um, so any life that assembles uses the same one. And personally, I can think of how cool that would be for biology and the way that, you know, you can yeah. have systems that start from the same four bases, but encode entirely differently. Um, so for example, you may know of um, codons in DNA. It's essentially sets of three nucleotides, even just ATG that encode for a specific amino acid. There's a lot of overlap um, because there's way more possible codons than there are uh, amino acids that we use. But say you have an organism that actually is using the full codon space for all different types of amino acids, um, some that don't really exist in organisms on Earth. Say you have an organism that encodes fundamentally differently. So instead of ATG being methionine or a start sequence, you have it code for another amino acid. And so as a biologist, this then gives you a lot more room to play around with. Um, then I'm thinking of this purely from like an inevitable tool use sort of way, because every time we find cool biology, we inevitably exploit it. Um, <laughs> but it's it's sort of like a darker mirror of ourselves, right? That you could have mm. something that would fundamentally start with some of the same building blocks, but wind up with something very different that, you know, from the wow. same four Lego pieces as you build, um, you know, a rocket ship or you build a castle. Like This is interesting because this points to a question I had not, uh, understood this this nuance to this question that declaring something to be part of this panspermia hypothesis becomes a bit difficult because how di- now what I was imagining was basically literally we find and let's say we find an asteroid floating around Jupiter and we we actually right we have satellites now that are going to they're pulling out uh, they're digging into an asteroid, pulling out some dust and bringing it back to Earth and we study it. You can imagine, what if we find something in there that's like, whoa, and it's like 99.9999999% the same as our DNA. That would be profound. But what you're saying is, if we find something that's different, it doesn't automatically say that there are what they call multiple genesis, you know, that, that it doesn't tell us yet whether life formed on wherever this asteroid came from like doesn't mean that life life didn't necessarily automatically it doesn't tell us automatically life evolved independently it arose from nothing on mars and earth at the same time we we Um, still may not know 
Yeah, and this is this is always one of the uh, the the tricks is when you run into alien life or alien technology, will you be able to recognize it as such? Um, yeah. And that was one of the exciting things about that um, Antarctic meteorite back in I think ninety six. It was yeah. is that it was definitely a Martian meteorite. So if it had signals of life in it, um, then we could be pretty sure that. Um, that it did come from Mars, that it wasn't just contamination from here on earth. Um, um, and if it's, you know, if we could have this, this, these trinary setup that, that Gabby is talking about, um, instead of the, the quadrinary one that, that we're used to for DNA, um, that would be really exciting because it's really not clear what different kinds of life the universe allows for. Um, you know, maybe you can have self-replicating organisms that don't share anything with, with DNA, um, in which case it would be very sad because we couldn't eat them, right. Um, if they're based Mm -hmm. on totally different biochemistry. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that Sagan always liked to say was, you know, he liked to warn us against carbon chauvinism by which he meant the, the assumption that every, every living thing in the universe must be like us that is based on, on carbon chemistry. Um. Because he's like the universe is a big place, uh, and there could be all sorts of different crazy things out there. Um, yeah. So whether or not the universe allows, you know, is is the universe structured such that all self-replicating organisms will share some deep kinship with us, or is it possible that there are things that are completely different out there? Um, yeah. And those are, I think, those are empirical questions, right? Those are things we can only solve by by looking. Um, right. And well, since uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, so say, we, we may not ever be able to answer that question because we may not ever be able to visit distant stars. Yeah. Um, so it may be one of the great unanswerables. You know, it's interesting is this drills down again. I love this. It sort of actually puts a spotlight on the uh, the empty part of my vision for this, which is the the period. In other words, if we say what we're talking about now is can life evolve? Can life arise independently? on multiple worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And that puts a focus on, I love this, puts a focus on the empty period. In other words, what does that mean um, when we say it arose independently? Uh, it, we might not even say it arises independently anymore. If what, in other words, Here's what it boils down to. What if the evolution of life is a natural part of all geological, physical processes, mm-hmm. right? Is, I don't know, help me understand that, Matt. What, what yeah, so that? I should say, then we're back to Anaxagoras. Um, yeah. the, the idea that uh, it, is, it is a deep principle of the way the universe is put together, that life will appear wherever it is possible. Um, mm. And nowadays, uh, we recognize this. This appears in uh, an idea called the anthropic principle, which mm. is that there is something there is something about the universe that will give rise to life wherever it is possible. Mm. Um, like the laws of nature are actually set up in a way to encourage life, um, yeah. and that has certain, I should say, theological suggestions as, <laughs> as well behind it that the universe right. was, was designed this way. It's the um, self-organizing part, right? That sort of. In other words, what we're saying is that somehow in an environment of non-self-organizing material, like the, the early Earth, we believe the sterile early Earth at some point. And Gabby's, we, we've actually done episodes in the past, Gabby, where you've 
there was one, I think, where we went with you back in time to that small warm pond that uh, mm-hmm. Darwin imagined. And we watched the beginnings of life uh, happen. Um, what we're saying is that this would, if, if, if we discover that life is everywhere, so to speak, um, that the, the, the fact that suddenly some life started organizing itself there was simply a matter of time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't going from nothing to something. It was baked into the, the original uh, properties themselves. What do you think? Gabby? Yeah. Go ahead. So, I mean, one of the things that I should probably bring up here is, is part of the reason why when people look for life in other planets or hypothesize that it's also probably carbon-based, you know, it's not always intrinsically carbon chauvinism. Like, yes, we could be, it could be silicone-based life or something like that. But part of the reason why we tend to think this is because it's based on chemistry. So carbon is very, very good at forming four bonds. It's kind of like the Elmer's glue of the universe. So you can make <laughs> complex structures with carbon very easily. So you can eat it a, too. That's an yeah, important well, part we of Elmer's yeah. glue. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, you know, cover it in your hands and peel it off. I noticed a lot of, uh, yeah. that yeah. was very common. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there are, are fundamental things on a chemical level that are sort of the lowest activation energy for life to form. Um, these things are simple, they're straightforward, they they make sense. Like, so for example, water is a really good medium for life because you can use it to sort of exchange electrons. Mm. Um, it winds up being good for chemistry. It's good for chemistry, basically. Mm. Same thing with carbon. It's good for making structures. Um, and so sometimes things do tend to self-organize in ways that could accidentally produce results. Um, So what we think the earliest, air quotes, life might have been was just self-replicating RNA. And Mm. RNA is kind of a simple thing. It doesn't have to be too long. And naturally, chemically, it forms bonds with itself that then could make it able to replicate itself, essentially assemble other RNA bits floating through the soup into more of it. Mm. Um, And so it's, it's, sort of like this stochastic process it's all random and could happen but part of the reason why we think it might happen similarly at least in the startup is because of just chemistry um but of course once you have the basics you can go off on all sorts of crazy tangents i mean biology on earth is already weird enough between creatures um it is not i mean that totally undercuts how crazy it would be if you started, I mean, after after that self-replicating RNA, whatever direction they kept going could just be insane to us. Right. I love the idea that all forms of, all the different forms of life are all just crazy tangents. They're all yeah. just like well, random side, right, actually, we are all yeah. side thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, it makes me think of, you know, Carl Sagan's uh, wonderful quote, which was quoted quite a bit at the uh, conference this week, which is quite wonderful, was, we are all star stuff. Mm-hmm. In fact, there there were a number of children at this conference, uh, including very young ones who gave presentations. It was really beautiful. And they all quoted, you know, one of the things that almost every one of them at some point quoted Carl Sagan in one form or another. And one of their favorite expressions was they loved the kids, little kids love to say, as, as we all do, too, we are all made of star stuff. The thing is, whenever I heard that expression, I always thought of it as star stuff, meaning dead or star dust 
you know, like mm -hmm. something like that. And that somehow it came, it came, we came alive out of that deadness. But in fact, if you imagine that that star stuff, stardust is actually alive or, you know, full of the potential for life. Um, I don't know. It just gives you a different, totally different view of the, uh, the universe. Matt, what do you think? Closing thoughts from you. Um, I mean, it is a, a beautiful image that the universe is, is full of life. Um, I think, as I, I, I said early on, um, panspermia is often invoked as an answer to the question of how did life come to be? And I find it an extremely unsatisfying answer because it just pushes back the question to somewhere else, right? You say, well, where did life, how did life come to be here on earth? And you say, well, it came from somewhere else. I'm like, all right, well, how did it come to be somewhere else? Well, it came from somewhere else, somewhere else. Um, and I find that, and I, I feel like eventually we have to get to abiogenesis or an, a genuine explanation for how life. So what you're, you're saying is Giordano life. Bruno should have been burned at the stake. Wasn't he the one who had, had would present that the logic of that, you know, with life yeah that's right and actually it's still it's all it's all the way bruno's the same as an axagoras for that um, right life just boring um and bruno's i should say bruno was actually burned for being an atomist um uh, this <laughs> the same way everybody hated the atomists back in ancient greece too um atoms were very upsetting really really <laughs> trouble trouble um well you know yeah the guy who presents the uh the nuanced interpretation or things like that. You're, you're just going to get arrows from both directions yeah. anyway. Um, uh, Gabby, how about you closing? What are your closing thoughts on this? Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of these things that I feel like as a biologist, you kind of have to think about it, but like Matt, it is unsatisfying to just think that yeah, it came from somewhere else. Um, uh -huh. You know, I do think it's interesting if we can co sort of trace any life that we find in other places to some sort of common shared origin, if only it's that asteroids dump the same starting materials onto the same planets. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this is just really quickly spirals into my whole thing about the concept of, like, life in the universe being absolutely insane and fundamentally unrecognizable <laughs> from, like, what we consider life. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to stop before it gets too big. But I just, I think it's a neat thought exercise. I, I would I, I agree with that everything both of you said, but it, in fact, well, I think there's one really cool part of it, and that is just from a science fiction storytelling point of view, which is that it pushes. It, it says life came from somewhere else, but that still that logic still takes you all the way back to the idea that there was one place somewhere where mm -hmm. it began, right? Um, sometime after the Big Bang, and that puts us in the category of like uh, the people in this in Battlestar Galactica where it was like we don't we believe we are told our myths tell us we came from a place called earth but mm -hmm. we don't know where that is it's kind of fascinating to imagine where if if earth if this earth that we're on was not the origin of life um if it turns out well actually it was a planet around a primordial star you know some hundreds of thousands of years after the big bang um and we could turn the Hubble telescope or, or the, excuse me, the James Webb telescope yes, okay. towards it and capture a picture of we believe this is where life began. That's going to start quite a tourist uh, race towards that uh, that location. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's a long cruise. So good luck packing for that. <laughs> Strap in. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but the cruise to the, the new Holy Land, you know, <laughs> would be quite a journey. Um, well, thank you both, as always, for this incredibly uh, invigorating um, 
discussion. Gabby, uh, anything you'd like to plug? We're still we're still on on tender hooks, awaiting the publication of your uh, of your upcoming story. But for those who haven't heard it in previous episodes, you can tell us about that. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I mean, so that's the main thing. Uh, coming up in the fall, don't have an exact release date. Uh, one of my short stories is going to be featured in uh, Neon Hemlock's Luminescent Machinations um, short story anthology, um, which is really great. It's uh, science fiction really focused on like kind of cyborg mecha stuff. Um, so expect sort of some cyberpunk stuff in there. Um, it should be really cool. I'm also personally excited to read the stuff from all the other artists uh, that are in the magazine. Not magazine. Yeah anthology anthology yeah yeah very cool very cool matt how about you uh no i'm i'm plugless unplugged mm -hmm. going into summer vacation is that right well actually i'm starting summer teaching on tuesday so <laughs> yeah. i guess that's a kind of plug if anybody wants what's to your what what is the class uh, that's my carl sagan class actually oh that's a great class yes oh. matt. so i encourage all of you to sign up for new york university's uh uh, Gallatin School. Oh, by the way, so I went walking around uh, lovely Washington, D.C., uh, where I am uh, the other evening, walked past the White House at night, which is a, a beautiful sight, all lit up. And then next to the White House, of course, is the Treasury Building. And mm -hmm. there's a statue of a guy in front of the Treasury. So I walked past that. I've spent my whole life going past the Treasury. I never actually bothered to look at who who is the, uh, or it's been a long time since I looked at who the statue is of. I assumed it was Alexander Hamilton. Oh, no. Um, yeah. It is actually... Gallatin. It is Albert Gallatin. Yeah. Albert right. Gallatin. Second secretary mm -hmm. of the treasury. Um, that is the school. Did he actually have some connection to the founding of that school? Or he founded, he's the co-founder of NYU um, oh, with Samuel yeah. Morse. Hmm. Um, oh, and cool. uh, yeah, so we named the, the school after him. Um, considering yeah, the tuition I had to. Yeah. 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 Albert mm -hmm. Gallatin. I was looking him up. Uh, considering the price of the tuition I had to pay to go to NYU, I do understand why his the statues in front of the treasury, you know, uh, yes, that's <laughs> exactly right. And he's, he's the guy who raises the money to do the Louisiana purchase actually. So oh, fascinating. In, some, oh. in some strange sense, your tuition dollars helped with that. Well, you know, I, I support that. I, I do. Um, and that's also why I should say, if you've ever been to Montana, everything is named Gallatin because that was, oh. the, that was the very edge of the Louisiana purchase. So when you're out there, in fact, I was wearing the shirt I'm wearing right now. When I was there at a conference at um, Montana State University, and that's where the Gallatin River is and the Gallatin Valley, and everybody was very excited to have me there. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to look up and learn much more about Albert Gallatin. It sounds mm -hmm. fascinating. Maybe his name was pronounced Gallatin? Uh, well, he's Swiss, so oh. um, you'd have to ask the, the Swiss folks. It's possible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm actually going to be in Montana uh, this summer. So. Ah, cool. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for ifing with us. Um, Matt, would you like to uh, get everybody revved up? And, you know, imagine there could definitely be, in fact, we may have, um, by the way, there were quite a few people at the conference who knew of the What the If podcast. So oh, that cool. was awesome. That's cool. And shout out to all of you who were in attendance with me at the conference, knew about it. And a lot of other people, um, because I don't shut up about it, learned about the show and maybe listening now. <laughs> so for those, if we have new new members listen and new new audience members listening, Matt, uh, yeah, what, what, so, what is about to happen? Well, so one of the side effects of the panspermia theory is that um, occasionally um, living things will fall from the sky on you. 
um, <laughs> and they will be coming from other stars. So um, you're just walking along one day um, and you hear a strange noise and you look up and there is a space rhinoceros uh, falling on you from the sky <laughs> and you have no choice but to shout out. What? Rhinos from the sky. I'm writing it down as a nip for a future show. A lot of exciting guests coming up because I, I met a lot of cool people who I'm going to have on as uh, joining us on the show. In fact, people from other awesome science podcasts that I met at the conference um, and, uh, and guests who were at the conference. So all of that kind of stuff. Go at What The If Show. I'll be sharing lots more fun uh, clips uh, from some of the amazing panel discussions and uh, Q&As that happened over the past three days at the Humans to Mars Summit. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all next week when we have no idea what will happen. But we'll see you then. Bye.